I'm Halima Atta, and welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. So I kind of have been wanting to focus the first part of my podcast, um, and when I say part, I'm referring to, you know, like the first two or three episodes on race and social issues associated with that, because there are a lot of them, and I just feel like they just need to be brought to attention. It's pretty clear, you know, I've made it blatantly obvious by the subject of my last episode, and as you can see by the title of this one, that I wanted that to be a focus of, you know, the beginning of my podcast. Just to mention, racial issues aren't the only discussion topic of my podcast, but this is something really prominent right now that is um, something a lot of people could use some insight on. So I just wanted to bring that to attention. So the Black Lives Matter movement and all of that stuff has been gaining a lot of traction recently, and it's been pretty, um, it's been displayed all over social media. That's been a really useful tool in the movement, you know, the garnering of petitions and support from a wide scope of people. So given that social media is a big tool to spread awareness, it's also a big tool to educate, and a lot of people have been using it freely, um, posting on their stories, and with that comes ignorant posts. And I've had a lot of different conversations with a lot of different, you know, uninformed people, should I say. And um, usually they all swipe up on my story or I swipe up on theirs, and they always use the argument um, when presented with, you know, Black Lives Matter protests that they're not... um, that they're not particularly in favor of, they always use the argument that slavery ended, you know, years ago, and it ended, you know, in the 1800s, and we need to get over it, or that. One that I've heard very recently, hundreds of racists have been oppressed, and they got over it. I have to say, that's definitely one of the most creative arguments I've ever heard, um, 10 out of 10 for creativity. You know, just to rebuke everything in that argument, there are definitely not hundreds of races, and anyone who believes that kind of needs to do research. And to say that they've all been oppressed is a stretch compared to the years and years of marginalization that black people still are influenced by today. And it's not a competition. Oppression is never good, no matter who it affects. But it's really important to note that slavery never really ended. It just manifested itself into other things. Systemic racism, which is the main topic of today's episode, is literally just slavery in, like, a different font. People like to say, well, you know, that was the past. The system was built to oppress black people in the past. It's not like that anymore. Like, I can get a job right now, and, you know, Halima, you don't, you don't live in poverty, or, you know, I know a black guy who's, who has a higher job than my, my white dad. The fallacy in that argument lies in very clear sight. The fact that that's how the system was built. Keyword built. The whole point of using that word is to show that that was the basis, the foundation, meaning that if it was strong enough, which it definitely was, that it still holds true or that it, um, including its mistakes, most notably, have still had an effect on people in the future. Correspondingly, black people are still affected by systemic racism because primarily, well, not systemic racism, wrong word, Um, they're still affected by the foundation of this country because primarily it wasn't built for us. Just for some background, the system um, was built for rich, land-owning white males. Spanning back to centuries ago, this is evident in the beginnings of our country. Um, In our founding documents, um, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution that women, that black people weren't included in, in like every single American history textbook, most notably in the fact that white men with property were the only Americans routinely permitted to vote. Because of this, and you know, all of these facts, Every other group that doesn't identify um, with that white, rich, land-owning male 
stereotype has struggled to a point as a result of the broken foundation. Women of all races, black people, Hispanics, natives, etc. The list just goes on. Anyone that didn't fall into that very, 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 very narrow box um, are still affected by the broken foundation. But, you know, just as a means of this episode, I kind of want to focus on, as included in that previous statement, black individuals, and as I said before, how they're still affected significantly by the system's brokenness or faults, which is when systemic racism comes into play. So to get into it, I honestly can't give you a clear, concise definition, um, as I did in, you know, the last episode with all of the other issues I, um, discussed because it's truly a concept that's so big that it's hard to define. It revolves around the kind of, you know, facets of the system that put minorities at a disadvantage and it's structural, meaning that it creeps into various elements of life, whether it's housing or education, unemployment, etc, etc. To quote from the author of a book, So You Want to Talk About Race, Ijeoma Uluo, But what's actually been impacting our lives are systems that rely on subtle and not so subtle biases against people of color to disempower disempower us, I'm sorry, and put us at risk. And so we've been fighting for job opportunities, for safety from violence, for equal education, for freedom from medical racism. And that is upheld not by how you love or don't love people of color, but how you participate with our systems. Now, that's a lot of information to take in, and I really like that quote because it kind of just put all of my thoughts into one long sentence, paragraph kind of thing. Basically, systemic racism is too big to generalize, but um, I'm just going to do my best at giving you a clear definition. Basically, as I said before, systemic racism isn't one thing. It's not, you know, it's not the same as individual racism, which a lot of people think it is. I know that sounds really clear and concise, but a lot of people think that systemic racism is basically the same thing as, you know, somebody not wanting to sit with me on the bus because I'm black, or somebody not giving me the same opportunities because I'm black. Although those two factors can obviously play into it, systemic racism is the bigger picture, basically. That's the best I can define it. It, it creeps into so many different areas of life, of daily life, of, you know, your day-to-day, that it's just so hard to explain in a sentence. So I'm just going to break it down throughout this episode into various facets that a lot of people don't realize are attributed to systemic racism and the horrors that it brought upon. So let's just start with housing. This is a really big one. It's obvious to me, but a lot of people aren't aware of it. Redlining. So as previously mentioned, systemic racism finds itself affecting various facets of daily life, one of the most significant ones being housing. Redlining, as defined by the Brookings Institution, was the practice of outlining areas with sizable black populations in red ink on maps as a warning to mortgage lenders, effectively isolating black people in areas that would suffer lower levels of investment than their white counterparts. Now, this all began with the National Housing Act of 1934, which established the Federal Housing Administration, or the FHA. This was only banned a little over 50 years ago, per the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And I say only, and people, um, I was those people, I was people, like, five years ago. I thought that, you know, our textbooks textbooks presented um, redlining or, you know, these issues as if, you know, they were black and white, as if it happened in, like, the 18th century, when they only happened 50 years ago. 50 years ago is relatively recent, given that my parents were literally alive 50 years ago. They were really young, but they were alive 50 years ago. My grandparents were alive 50 years ago. I have family that was alive 50 years ago. The fact that they can recall this happening means that it's way too recent. 
So as I was saying, um, although this happened 50 years ago, the banning of redlining, tons of black individuals and other minorities alike are still affected by it. A new study has shown that three out of four neighborhoods that were redlined on government maps 80 years ago are continuing to struggle economically. So not only did this racially restrictive system, housing system, make it almost impossible for black individuals to buy homes and, you know, maintain their pre-existing ones, become homeowners, but loans for those living in these disadvantaged areas were either unavailable completely or priced at exorbitant expensive amounts, making them unaccessible. And this is where kind of the whole topic of systemic racism comes into play because a lot of people don't believe it's true using, you know, they collectively use the argument that, hey, like, yeah, redlining was bad, but it ended, you know, 50 years ago. So, you know, now you can have a bigger house than me. You know, black people can live in better neighborhoods. Although that is partially true, there's so many fallacies because the issue of systemic racism works um, with, you know, of course, redlining and all those issues being made in the past, but it also has to work in tandem with its, with those issues that I mentioned still having an influence today. And that's where that statistic that I just mentioned really makes systemic racism a real issue. So this unjust disadvantage set the foundation for this country's modern racial wealth gap, which goes unnoticed. It's obvious that white people have had a clear advantage, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, 400 years of an advantage um, over black people and minorities. But um, this gap was really just set in stone, kind of, kind of solidified in part by systematic racism that occurred after slavery, in the post-slavery era. This gap is responsible for the median net worth of white families being 10 times higher than their black counterparts, and black families having a 1 in 5 rate of being at a zero or negative net worth, which is twice the rate of white families. So kind of moving back to my main point, though, redlining didn't end in 1968 with the abolition of it. The negative effects it had on the black community have just been immeasurable, and that's why it's so important to define systemic racism as racism, of course, that works in tandem with having negative effects on a on a minority, on black people, for years to come. It's generational. This redlining and how it contributes to systemic racism has become a generational issue, preventing generations of people from becoming homeowners, making improvements to their homes, and gaining equity. Um, you know, you can see it in the fact that black people, you know, all minorities, but again, for the sake of this argument, I'm talking about black people, how redlining caused them to not be able to live in better neighborhoods. They lived in poor neighborhoods. They were disadvantaged. And parents passed this down to their children. They passed it down to their children. And it just became something that was hard to escape, almost inevitable for their family. So it's generational, as I said before. Um... So this has just translated itself into formerly redlining neighborhoods existing still at the center of urban areas, remaining more segregated and economically disadvantaged. As previously mentioned, one of the horrors, or probably the worst aspects of systemic racism, is that it infiltrates many different areas. So moving on from just one of the, you know, probably one of the most notable ones of housing, um, I wanted to move on to education. Probably one of the worst facets of systemic racism is education. A lot of people like to use the argument, and let me reiterate, these arguments are things that I have actually heard and experienced in life. They are not fake, as stupid as some of them sound. They are very much real and not purely rhetorical. Moving on, 
a lot of people like to make the argument, well, if you're born into an underprivileged home or if you're born into, you know, um, an economically disadvantaged neighborhood, you have the opportunity to escape and, you know, get out by getting good grades in school, paying attention, going to school, getting into school, and such and such. However, a lot of people fail to recognize that systemic racism creeps into and infiltrates the education system, the schooling system as well. To quote College of Education Dean Gregory Anderson, right from the get-go, this country created an unequal educational system, but the relationship between education, race, and socioeconomic status becomes even more complex if you look at post-slavery America. The unequal system is based on a confluence of factors, including Jim Crow legislation in the South, the rise of residential segregation in northern states, and the limited role of the federal government in funding and overseeing public education. That was a lot of information to take in, so I'm going to water it down just a little bit. Essentially, black people have had limited education opportunities in this country since the beginning. You know, we saw it in Brown versus Board of Education, where finally, in 1954, the doctrine separate, separate but equal was abolished. But that really, in the long run, had no effect on how systemic racism creeps into the, the schooling system. In school districts that are typically constituted by poorer, racially segregated neighborhoods, funding comes from taxation of the property values of homes. And as explained, these segregated communities tend to be poorer and tend to have lower rates of home ownership as well as lower home values. This conundrum obviously leads to underfunded schools and affects primarily black neighborhoods, all of it a direct result of systemic racism. Racism. It's all connected and it still hurts minorities. And there's so many other statistics that just go unnoticed. A lot of people fail to understand that black students and black individuals in in the schooling system, um, regardless of you know the, the quality of education, they're still affected by this because as you can see, let me pull up the statistic, as you can see, Black students make up 16% of student enrollment, but represent 27% of students referred to law enforcement and 31% of students subject to arrest. White students, on the other hand, make up 51% of enrollment, 41% of students referred to law arrest, law enforcement, and 39% of those arrested. Those statistics are literally disproportional. Why are there less black students enrolled, but more of them are referred to law enforcement? than enrolled see it just it makes no sense and it's really i don't want to say unfair because that sounds really you know kiddish childish because this is not a childish issue it's really serious but it's it's unfair and a lot of people are aware of the silent but the silent issue of the school to prison pipeline students and most notably black students are 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 all secretly a part of the school to prison pipeline which i just mentioned and this is when students are channeled right into the criminal justice system, where, of course, people of color experience unfair treatment, of course, when simple altercations at school um, lead to arrest for assault and just lead to something completely insane, which feeds into the prison pipeline. And a lot of people feel like um, calling the cops at school is justified, you know, when there's a fight, the cops come. However, people don't understand that Black students are um, black students are affected significantly more than their white counterparts. So something as simple as um, you know a, a verbal altercation between another student can lead to an arrest, which feeds into the school to prison pipeline, which is just unfair. So you know just to wrap that whole that whole thing up, black people, people living in underprivileged neighborhoods, which are primarily composed and constituted by minorities, are susceptible to 
getting a worse quality of education, having worse teachers, you know, being in debt in the future, um, not getting into colleges. It all is connected and attributed to systemic racism, unfortunately. Moving on, another facet of systemic racism that a lot of people are unaware of is presented in the emergence of negative stereotypes, one of the most notable ones being that black people cannot swim. This is a stereotype that I've been surrounded by, I've encountered countless times. It was almost as common as, you know, the African hut and water jokes I experienced throughout the entirety of middle school and elementary too, actually. It starts relatively early. Anyway, a lot of people don't know that this stereotype emerged from a form of systemic racism. The, the post-slavery Jim Crow era gave rise to all of these different casual examples of racism, some not as casual as others. And when I say casual racism, I don't mean they were minor because in no way is aquatics racism in aquatics minor. It just isn't addressed as heavily or, you know, discussed as much as other forms of racism. So yeah, even though black individuals weren't in the fields picking cotton anymore, it wasn't to say they weren't being oppressed. So to get back to my point, which I've clearly lingered away from, aquatics and racism really went hand in hand. During the 1920s to 30s um, pools, there was a huge, significant boom in the amount of pools that were constructed and built in neighborhoods and cities all throughout the United States. And to quote um, words from Jeff Wilkes, author of Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America, and back during the 1920s and 30s, and it really continuing on even further up from there, there were racist assumptions that black Americans were dirtier than whites, that they were more likely to be infected by communicable diseases. And so, in part, the push for racial segregation and racial exclusion was for white swimmers to avoid being infected by the supposed, quote-unquote, dirtiness of black Americans. Now, there were various... Um, harmful and disgusting stereotypes that surrounded black Americans that caused them to not even be able to have access to these pools. Um, this was a reason why significantly less pools were built in black neighborhoods and underprivileged neighborhoods and neighborhoods affected by redlining, which I mentioned before. There was just a huge stigma that surrounded black individuals, um, whether it was that they had heavier bones, which was, yes, that was genuinely believed by people in the 20th century, that they were dirtier, and one of the, maybe one of the biggest ones was that black males were more susceptible to sexually assaulting white women underwater, which is why they were so, which is why the construction of pools in black neighborhoods was so strongly avoided and why they weren't permitted to enter most swimming pools. Clearly, segregation was something that was really prominent during that time, which led to violence. People that wanted, black individuals that wanted to be swimming in these um newly integrated quote-unquote integrated pools were met with violence they were clubbed they were attacked with acid when they entered pools they would be um, cleared out they would be attempted to be drowned and this led to a fear that was instilled in black individuals that still affects us today moving on it's not common knowledge but um these pools were racially desegregated in the late 1940s 1950s however once that happened, white people saw black individuals, of course, as a threat. And when municipal pools became racially desegregated, um, meaning that the court had to order that the pool would be open to blacks and whites without you know, racial discrimination, the overall attendance, and I'm quoting Dr. Wilkes again, the overall attendance to the pool would plummet, and literally the majority of whites who had been using the pool previously stopped using municipal pools. Now, what a lot of people don't take away from this fact is that white people stopped using these 
you know, now racially desegregated pools. However, what they did do was retreat to private pools. They would build private club pools, which were allowed to legally discriminate against black Americans, or they would personally, you know, they would build their own personal at-home residential pools so that they could really enclose themselves off from the larger public and truly exercise control over who they were swimming with. What a lot of people don't take away from this is that once white people were taken away from these public pools, nobody started looking after them. People stopped taking care of them. They weren't tended to anymore. They were not funded as much anymore, leading to still the vast majority of black individuals not knowing how to swim, not having access to as many um, YMCA pools to learn how to swim, leading to white people having significantly more knowledge of being able to swim. Um, I didn't phrase that right. Leading to white people having an ability of learning, knowing how to swim over black individuals. Cities unwillingness to, um, you know, create recreational facilities for black people deprive these underprivileged black neighborhoods of pools, preventing these black people from learning such a life-saving skill of swimming. And this translates into today, which um, still affects the black community. This phenomenon becomes kind of reminiscent of one that I mentioned before, which means that it was a generational issue. This fear that was instilled in black individuals for simply wanting to swim in public pools, the racial discrimination they face, the violent beatings, the acid pouring that black individuals face for simply wanting to swim, created a fear that was instilled in generations and it just passed on and passed on and led to the statistics that we see today. As of today, 64% of black slash African American children cannot swim, compared to the mere 40% of Caucasian children who cannot swim. And as cited by the CDC, 3,500 people die every year from in water. And within those 3,500 people, the fatal drowning rate of black slash African American children is three times higher than white children. These staggering statistics are accredited to institutional slash systemic racism, of course, as we discussed. And these all gave way to an inherited fear of drowning, which has passed from generations to generations, ever since the 20s to 30s that, you know, occurred in the 20th century, that caused black people to feel marginalized when just trying to swim. And the USA Swimming Foundation study shows that if a parent does not know how to swim, there's only a 13% chance that their child will learn how to swim. So as we can see, this generational issue gives way to more black individuals not knowing how to swim. And it's all accredited to the horrors of systemic racism that we see. And it's relationship and connection to aquatics that a, aquatics that a lot of people are unaware of. So now that I've covered three of the most prominent factors of systemic racism, um, which were housing, you know, with redlining, um, the harmful stereotypes and education and its connection to the prison system, I wanted to mention the topic of quote-unquote black privilege. I'm just as shocked as you probably are. I didn't know that this was a concept that people genuinely believed in. I thought it was just a trolling thing and I just didn't think it was true because it sounds insane. But I want to debunk it. So recently I came across a TikTok. I am on TikTok half of the time. So I come across a lot of these that was a black person actually discussing why he thought black privilege was a thing and why they were why black individuals are at an advantage in society. He mentioned the creation of HBCUs, affirmative action, and how these programs and policies that have been put in place to help black people are prejudiced and how they put us at an unfair advantage. I just want to debunk this because I feel like too many people are aware that this exists and never say anything about it 
just to review all of those points, HBCUs, um, affirmative action, all of these programs were put in place because of the institutionalized and systemic racism, which I've discussed for the past like 15 minutes that have so marginalized and oppressed black individuals. The main point of systemic racism being so you know, huge is that it still affects people today. That works in tandem with the blatant racism, which is what makes it such a huge issue. Affirmative action HBCUs were essentially formed as safe havens for black individuals that felt oppressed, that felt marginalized because they literally weren't allowed into these predominantly white schools and programs. We saw it in how violent um, police guards were at swimming pools where acid was literally poured into pools for black people who were just trying to swim. We see it in how that we're still achieving first for black individuals graduating um, as valedictorians from certain institutions and colleges because of the marginalization that they felt in the 20th century, which was as recent as 50 years ago, which sounds like a huge number, but it really isn't. And wrapping up, this isn't to say that um, this whole episode, per se, isn't to say that all black individuals are struggling, living in poverty, can't swim, etc., Personally, I am living in the suburbs, and I'm aware of my privilege. I can swim, luckily. However, to the vast majority of those Black individuals that do fall into the categories that I've been discussing in this episode, that can all be attributed to years of systemic and institutionalized racism that have so unfairly affected, negatively affected Black individuals to this day. That being said, I hope you're able to obtain some new knowledge from this episode or take something away that you did not know before because systemic racism is such a huge multifaceted issue that kind of manifests itself into so many different components of daily life and it affects so many people and a lot are just unaware of its consequences that are still felt by people today. With that being said, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to go to ratethispodcast.com slash a little perspective and give me a rating so I can know how you feel. To wrap up with a quote that I saw somewhere on Instagram, it's okay to be uninformed or uneducated on a topic, but it's not okay to refuse to educate yourself, especially with resources like this one that are readily attainable. With that being said, be sure to tune in next Thursday for a new episode, and thanks for listening.